We are live in the Brigino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark cast iron building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, Kings of Queens, Life Beyond Baseball with the 86 Mets, the publisher, Berkeley Books, the author, Eric Sherman. Please join me as we say welcome home to Eric Sherman. Thank you. Thanks so much, uh, Eric. I really appreciate that you wrote this book uh, for a couple of uh, uh, selfish reasons, I guess. One, as, as, a, as a diehard Mets fan, this was kind of the team that I always considered the greatest team, and, and uh, I Emotionally, I, uh, I felt very close to them. I was probably the same age as most of these guys. They were a little more partying than I was at night, but in, in 1986. But, beca <laughs> but because of that, there's a certain emotional attachment you have. Uh, and the other is, as we were saying before the podcast started, uh, this, how we kind of came together over Mookie Wilson with the Viscardi Center. And... Uh, so for those two reasons, I really appreciate that you wrote this book so you could come back to the clubhouse. <laughs> and I, I really enjoyed reading through this. And I think especially Met fans, but anybody will really enjoy uh, these stories and these chapters. Thank you. And by the way, before we get into this book, I just want you to know, and mainly this is for the people on the podcast, uh, Eric's other books. Uh, Eric is the co-author of Out at Home, The True Story of Glenn Burke, baseball's first openly gay player. Steve Blass, A Pirate for Life, and Mookie, the Mookie Wilson book. Uh, so now to get to the Kings of Queens, you write about this a little bit in the book, but if you could just uh, speak about it a bit, how did this project come about? Well, the success of Mookie's book, it, it made the New York Times bestseller list for sports hardcovers. The book signings that Mookie had, uh, we went to eight or nine of them in a six-day period. And it was like he was a rock star. I mean, the, the lines were 400 to 600 every single night, no matter where we, we went. And this was a couple of years ago when the Mets were still cellar dwellers or struggling. You know, now they're the toast of the town again. But a couple of years ago, you know, Mookie was saying, see, Eric, you know, they're, they're hiding in the weeds. They're just waiting, you know, for the Mets to be relevant again. Um, so seeing the response that the Mookie book got, um, it was our last book signing, and we were in Maplewood, New Jersey at Words, and you know, the line again, it's two blocks down, they're coming to see Mookie, and so Rosa Wilson, Mookie's wife, uh, she goes to me, so Eric, what's your next book project going to be? I thought, well, you know, I, with the Steve last book, I got to meet so many of his Pirates teammates um, from the early 70s, so I'm like, well, what about Roberto Clemente? You know, I, and some, some of his teammates said, you know, I could tell you things about Clemente. You've never heard of them before. And I'm like, this might be pretty good. And then Rosa said, you know, I'm really wondering what Sid Fernandez is up to and what some of those other guys from the 86 Mets are up to. And so I went home and I thought about it. And I'm like, well, if I did something like that, you know, I had met Keith Hernandez, Ron Darling, uh, Bobby Ojeda, I knew Mookie, and, and Mookie was more than willing to introduce me to other 86 Mets teammates. But um, I thought, you know, I don't want this to be some kind of soft book on, 
you know, uh, you know, everything was wonderful in 86 and these guys were the toast of the town and superstar. You know, like I wanted to have a different angle where I could really go deep with these guys. Not just the same old stories you heard about Strawberry and Gooden and Dykstra, but um, about the other key players and about some of the um, role players like Ed Hearn, Kevin Mitchell, um, Danny Heap, Raphael Santana, like what those guys are up to and what challenges they overcame. And so I recalled a book by Roger Kahn, The Boys of Summer. And that's really the playbook that I use for this book. So in case you're not familiar, it's probably the number one sports book of all time. Roger Kahn covered the Brooklyn Dodgers in the early 50s. In the early 70s, he went back, he traveled the country visiting the key players from the Brooklyn Dodgers to find out how they were doing today, 1972, and also a look back at the Dodger days. And some of those stories, uh, like the one with Billy Cox, if you're familiar with it, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, he told it exactly the way it was. Some, some of these guys were lonely, some of them were successful. Some of, uh, Carl Ferrillo was working on the World Trade Center. So you had those stories. So I thought with all the great, and I found this out from talking with a lot of these Mets players, wow, what a riveting story. Ed Hearn, I never realized the, the life-threatening illnesses this guy has had to deal with for the last 25 years. And his son has cancer too. And he married a nurse of all people before all this happened. Uh, you have Danny Heap, one of the most successful college coaches in, in baseball in the country. Who knew that? You know, so, so you had all these other stories to tell. Um, so I chose the 14 players from that team that they're the key and the most riveting players. And I also interviewed uh, Sandy Carter. I went down to Florida. Uh, to see Gary Carter's widow. So I wanted to meet with these players in their current environments, uh, the environs in their homes, um, in the dugouts where they might be coaching, uh, their favorite bar, uh, wherever it took me throughout the country. And I traveled nearly 40,000 miles to visit these guys. And I think that angle, uh, it was fresh. And I think it's, part of the appeal of the book. And it seemed that the players were extremely open with you. Yeah. It, was that, do you feel be, that was because of your Mookie connection or, or were you surprised by that? Yeah, I, I, number one, uh, I think it was because of Mookie. Mookie Wilson on that 24-man roster, you know, in 86, it was a 24-man roster. Uh, it's, <laughs> I think the, it was the only year it was 24. Uh, Someone will de in this room will definitely correct me if that's not true. But um, <laughs> of, of every player on that team, Mookie was and still remains the most respected on that team. And I think the players felt like if I was good enough to help Mookie with his memoir, to be his co-author, co that they could give me some of their time. And, and all I asked these guys for were 45 minutes. Even though I, you know, if I, like with, I think the longest trip I took was to see Doug Sisk which is like 3,000 miles away. And I asked for 45 minutes and he gave me almost seven hours. You know, so they wanted to tell me their stories and we'll get into, uh, you, you're gonna talk about Doc Gooden, right? We may get into that as, as well, yeah. 
All right. You can talk a little bit about Doc if you want right now. Yeah. Somebody earlier asked me what was um, the biggest surprise in the interviews. And to me, it was how deep Doc went with me to the point where he had to excuse himself because he got so emotional. Uh, it's, it's a great story in the book. Um, you know, Gary Carter, uh, his wife asked him when he was on a road trip in 86, so, um, you know, what do you do tonight? He says, well, I went out with my three best friends. And Sandy, knowing that he didn't have many friends at that time on the Mets, said, really, who? And Gary goes, me, myself, and I. So they respected him as a player, but the adoration for Carter from the players took time. And so Gooden, he started getting emotional when he said that right before Gary died, he was suffering from brain cancer. And Doc Gooden was struggling with alcohol and drug addiction. And Gary said to him, you know, Doc, you and I both have these diseases. And you know, let's fight them together. That way, no one can take that, that away from us. And that's in the book. And you know, so I'm sitting in Doc's dining room, and he's telling me these stories. And you know, I think for Doc, it's probably a little therapeutic. But I had, but I read his book, and he was telling me things that weren't in the book. I mean, he really wanted uh, to convey his deepest thoughts, and all these guys did. Uh, I, I have to think it was because I did Mookie first. Um, but that was a big surprise how deep all these guys went with me. Well, absolutely. And uh, I just want to read a, a line because you, your, uh, your perceptions are dead on, and this has to do with Doc as well. Uh, Eric's line was uh, in the book, they will range from the brashness of Lenny Dykstra and Bobby Ojeda to the sweetness of Doc Gooden and Mookie Wilson. And Doc and Mookie have both been here for events, and I would say, without knowing them before, you may not know what the right word is, but the word sweetness, there is no better word for Doc or and Mookie. It's, it's the perfect word. It, it, it's a word that today usually isn't attributed to a male athlete, you know? And I thought about that word long and hard. You know, over 100,000 words, what goes into a book, the thoughts, you know, you're up at three o'clock in the morning looking for the right word. You know, Shakespeare used to say that he would change a paragraph at least 30 times. It's maddening. But that word, that's interesting you found that because I did struggle over that description. How do I really capture, you know, who Mookie and who Doc are? Um, and then there's Lenny and uh, Bobby Ojeda who are, who are, you know, very different. You know, they're very brash and no filter. Well, it's the perfect word, and I think I want to start with uh, the words of Davy Johnson, and then if you could just speak a little about that. This is, Davy, Davy Johnson wrote the foreword to the book, and this one paragraph, Davy's words, people talk about chemistry and how you get it on a ball club. Many say it comes from winning, I call that BS because chemistry really comes on a team where everybody knows his role. And our ball club knew when and how they were going to be used, were mentally prepared, and were all pulling together. If you could just speak a little about Davey and well, anything off of that. Yeah, Davey, you know, he was a player himself. You know, he, he played on all those great Baltimore Oriole teams. And um, 
he was kind of like the Forrest Gump of baseball in, in that, you know, he was with all those great Oriole teams. Then he uh, gets traded to the Braves, um, and he's hitting sixth the night Hank Aaron breaks Babe Ruth's record. And then he goes to Japan, and he's hitting sixth in the lineup the night Sada Haro passed Babe, Babe Ruth's number 714. And, you know, Davey understands ballplayers. And like he was saying before, you know, when you talk about chemistry, that 86 Mets team, they were like a family. And he wanted to make that clubhouse as comfortable for those guys as possible. So guys were showing up at 1 o'clock in the afternoon uh, for a 7.30 game, you know. Um, and uh, in the book, he, you know, he, 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 just, he says, you know, we weren't rounders, you know. We, uh, they were a product of their time. You know, and Keith Hernandez even says, you know, we didn't do anything different than what the Cardinals did when he played for the Car Cardinals. So I think chemistry, um, like what, what you said, um, Davey believed it was everybody knowing their role on the team. And if a Tim Tuffle all of a sudden hits 400 in June, well, you know what? He's going to start over Wally. You know, so it was a merit system. And uh, it worked well. And then he had the Daryl Strawberry rule. You know, you didn't have to run hard on, on a ground ball, but if the shortstop bobbles it, and you would have made it had you hustled, well, then you're fined $500, and that was the Daryl Strawberry rule. So he had a lot of fun with those guys, um, and a lot's been written about how hard they partied. Um, but, a lot, but to a man, they would t tell me, yeah, when we were out drinking, we were talking about the games and how to get better, and when we were waiting for the Shea Stadium traffic to disperse on a Sunday afternoon, we were having beers in the clubhouse, talking about the game, how to get better. And so it wasn't as crazy, I think, as it's been portrayed. Um, but I guess it's, it's perception. You know, <laughs> Keith, Keith Hernandez and Davey would say, yeah, we weren't crazy, but Daryl Strawberry and Doc Gooden would say that. <laughs> so I, I guess it's who you ask. Yeah, well, I think what we'll do is, uh, I'm gonna put aside some of the, the superstars for the moment. Okay. And I want, there's about three or four guys I'd like to get into who you profiled. And the way Eric starts the, each chapter, each chapter is a guy, and there's a quote by that player to start the chapter. So what I'd like to do is read that quote and then just let you speak about whatever Great. comes to your mind on that player. Uh, this chapter, The Hearns, Profiles in Courage. Ed Hearn. I feel really tired. I feel like I'm 84 instead of 53. I feel like I should be sitting in a chair in some retirement home looking out at some palm trees. But this journey has given me, has given me a gift that I know I'm supposed to use. Yeah, uh, Ed Hearn had a pistol to his head. Um, he had been struggling through, it, you know, he's had three kidney transplants, cancer, he's, uh, he's taken over I think a half a million pills for his health over the last 30 years. I mean, I'm not going to get into all the health problems because there's too many to name here. It's, he's lived the life of Job. Uh, it's unbelievable. Um, so he had a pistol. He was going to kill himself. Uh, and then he looked at a photo of his wife, and he had a, a baby at, at the time, a baby boy. And he changed his mind. and. Five days after that, he um, dug deep 
and he began his career as a motivational speaker. One of the more incredible stories in that book, how do you go from you know, con considering kill killing, killing yourself to um, beginning um, a life of, a career of giving motivational speakers. I mean, to me that's incredible, but yeah, he feels like a very old man now, uh, and uh, it's just because of his immense health problems. Well, it's really a beautiful chapter, and uh, I had no idea, and it, it, it hit me after the two catchers, one passes away from brain cancer, and the other one had these unbelievable, has had a lifetime of, it's, it's unbelievable what he's gone through. Yeah, and it's plural, um, profiles encouraged because he, this is incredible, you can't make this up. After the 86th season, he marries a registered nurse, who, and they're still together today, and their only son, their only child, has battled can cancer. And his wife, Trish, has just kept that family together and has been a nurse at home. I mean, he, he, I mean it's just incredible. Uh, so the three of them have uh, just displayed immense courage in their lives. By the way, one of the things in the book, for those of you uh, who are listening who have not gotten a book yet, uh, there are pictures in the book, and the pictures are all the guys currently. Did you take those photos, by the way? I took them all. That's what I thought. Yeah. And they're great because you go through and at first you go, wow, these guys got old. Some of these that guys you haven't seen from 1986, forgetting that you, you don't look in the mirror yourself. Yes, but, right. Uh, yeah, right. But that, that photograph of the Hearn family, after I read the chapter, was really beautiful. Uh, the way he spoke about how he met her, what she looked like, and how beautiful she still is. Yeah. Uh, it's really, th those photographs are really touching. Yeah, Ed, Ed said it's a miracle we're still together because um, with chronically ill people, their rate of divorce is 75%, and pro athletes, the rate of divorce is 75%. So, so Ed, Ed is like, well, you know, this is incredible that we're still together, but, but, but they are after all these years. The next uh, met I'd like to get to, uh, the chapter, the thug who wasn't, the quote. All these years, people used to think I was the bad one. Never. When I came up to the Mets, I started drinking. But I never did anything like Doc and Straw. And once I left the Mets, I ain't had a drink since. Kevin Mitchell. Yeah, probably the biggest surprise in the book was getting to know Kevin Mitchell. Uh, you know, I, it was so close that we could have had him here. And you know maybe uh, you know next time he's in New York maybe we'll tr try again. This guy is nothing like you would think. He is you know the nicest guy in the world. Uh, he dedicates his his time uh, helping kids improve their games, improve their hitting uh, at a batting cage, which he drives about an hour each way to. Doesn't charge a dime, and uh, coaches out there charge a lot of money. You know to help kids, and he doesn't charge anything. Um, and um, I don't know what else can you say. I mean, like that he he said he wasn't a thug, and he wasn't. Uh, the the Mets front office in '86 thought that he could possibly lead guys like Doc and Daryl and Lenny, you know, these young Mets stars, in the wrong direction, turn them to a life of drugs, 
Um, and uh, because of the gang environment that Kevin Mitchell came from, where he grew up in San, San Diego, and it, it, nothing could have been further from, from the truth. And I'll, I'll tell you, another big surprise in this book is to a man, these guys have said the 86 Mets were never the same after they got rid of Mitchell and Ray Knight. That those two guys completely changed the dynamic of that team. And so I would, you know, like I would say to these guys, every single one, I'd say, okay, well, they replaced Mitchell with McReynolds, Kevin McReynolds, who at the time was an established player who could steal bases, hit 25 home runs, drive in 90. Um, and Ray Knight was basically replaced full-time by, by Howard Johnson, who was a three-time 30, 30, uh, 30, uh, 30 guy, you know, 30 homers, 30 steals. And uh, so I'm thinking, really? The, the Mets weren't as good with, you know, when they made that move. And, and uh, he said, absolutely. You know, all these guys are say, saying that we lost the intimidation factor uh, and teams were afraid of us. You know, they had four brawls in 86. Right. And Ray Knight and Ke Kevin Mitchell were the first ones out there, you know, defending their team. But, but two better clubhouse guys you'd never want to meet. Um, and uh, the dynamic of that team changed drastically. Bobby Ojeda said the 88 team that won the division by 15 games, they won 100 games, the 86 team would have just brushed them aside. Yeah, it's, it's funny because that topic has come up with multiple ballplayers who have been in here uh, Mookie mentioned that when he was here, and when Ken Griffey Sr. was here, he spoke about Tony Perez. Basically, that was the end of the big red machine, when yep. they put Dan Dreesen at first and they thought he would have better numbers. And it just, it's funny how a general manager doesn't pick up on these things, but the ballplayers, they you know, they know. Uh, the next ballplayer I'd like to get to is, uh, this was a, a, a fascinating chapter. Uh, and I'm sure he's going to bring up a lot of different emotions in here. Uh, he's a name that most people probably have not thought about in a while. And I felt a little guilty, I have to say, reading this chapter. Uh, one was tormented. The quote, things got so bad that some quote-unquote fan sent me a Rexall drugs prescription for cyanide. The direction said, take until termination. Doug Sisk. Yeah, um, so the 86 Mets can, you know, they're going to have a celebration at City Field and they truly will be the Kings of Queens again, except for one guy. And there is one guy on the 86 Mets team that is not beloved and is not revered, and that's Doug Sisk. And um, still today, you know, when, when they'll have events at City Field and before that at Shea, Shea Stadium, when they would have an anniversary. You know, the poor guy still gets booed. And um, so he talks about that and how it affected his family and how the Mets told him to stop signing autographs before games because who knows what kind of in information the Mets had. Um, somebody um, uh, stopped the car that he was in coming outside of Shea Stadium with, with what turned out to be a fake gun, but it was pointed right at him and Jess, Jesse Orozco. Um, he was followed home by, by people so he wouldn't go straight home he'd go to some bar that that he knew the bouncers and the bouncers uh, he tells, tells a story how they worked over a couple of guys that were following him home 
Um, so he had to go, go through all that. And for the real Mets fans here, you'll know that his first two years with the club were, as bad as, were about as good as you can get. Uh, this guy had an ERA of around two. Uh, pitched, he had more appearances in a season, I think it was 83, than any Met in history up to that point. Um, and he was terrific. And, but you know how today uh, a trainer, if you have the sniffles, you know, they'll have three doctors in there to look, well then it wasn't like that. So this poor guy had 20 bone chips that he was pitching with because they overused him, they overworked him. I mean, he pitched you know, all these games during the season. Um, they, they had him in winter ball. They, so he was pitching all the time and, and, and he hurt his arm. And they didn't know it, and it affected him near the end of the 84 season. Picked the worst time, September 8th, 1984. The Mets are six games behind the Cubs. Dwight Gooden, the night before, had one hit the Cubs. Place was packed. Fans going crazy, and it's a close game. Uh, they're playing against Rick Sutcliffe, and Sisk is out there, and the game is just blown wide open. You know, Sisk, everything went wrong. He's walking guys, he's giving up hits, and he's walking off the mound, and he's just booed relentlessly. And uh, that was the beginning of the end. Uh, the 85 season was just an awful year for him. And in 86, it wasn't bad, but by that point, he was just so disdained by the fans at Shea Stadium that uh, um, it's just a shame because he, he's, he's such a great guy. He grew up in the Seattle area, the only Mets fan uh, in Seattle pr probably. Um, his hero was Tom Seaver. His first appearance was in relief of Seaver on opening day of 83. So it's, it's just a shame what, what happened to him. The, we're gonna go through one more play and then I'm gonna open it up for questions. So the last player I wanna go through is the, uh, the chapter, the square peg. I've never been on another team like that 86 club that wanted to cut your throat. We didn't just want to beat you, we wanted to burn down your village. We were, we were the, that type of people with that type of mob mentality to win at all costs. It was wonderful. I'm not talking about literally burning down a village. I'm talking about competing on the field where the only quantifying thing, if you're worth a shit, is wins and losses. And all of us who got to experience that, I'm sure, feel the same way. It was just a tremendous experience. Bobby Ojeda. Yeah, I mean, it was a roller coaster of an interview. Uh, he took over the interview much the same way that Lenny did. You know, I, I, I had my questions ready for bo both of them, and they weren't worth the paper. They're there. <laughs> These guys just take off. Um, and yeah, Bobby. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about the Gary Carter trade and how that really took the Mets to the next level. Well, I'll tell you, uh, Ojeda, as many of you know, um, was the missing piece going into 86. They had a very young pitching staff, so now you have a veteran coming from the Red Sox who they traded Calvin Schiraldi for. Um, you had a left-hander to join Sid Fernandez. Um, so that was important. And then you had this guy with a swagger that just fit right in with those Mets. Uh, he fit in perfectly. You know, with the Red Sox, he called himself a square peg in a round hole. He said that those guys, with a few exceptions, 
you know, Hearst, Tudor, and Gedman. But everybody else was just out for themselves, and they didn't like the young players coming up trying to take their spots. Um, and uh, it was just a very, uh, like an older team, and he goes to the Mets. They're a younger team, they're on the rise, they're pulling for each other. You know, it's 18 or 19 of them going out to dinner together, whereas with the Red Sox, it was 25 players, 25 cabs, that type of thing. And he went to the Mets, and he loved it. And he said, he says, uh, you know, I found myself a bunch of square pegs. <laughs> On that note, who wants to lead off? Randy? Should I give a disclaimer? Yes. These are all friends of mine because I was an executive with the Mets. So since their first moments at Chase Stadium and before, uh, and their families, because um, I was also the representative for the Mets' wives. So, uh, again, it's family. The thing that I think the main reason why you didn't have a problem with them speaking, there isn't a bone of insecurity in any of their bodies. Not one. And that's what you have to have to come off the way they did to everybody else. And what everyone's probably jealous of is their level of confidence, <coughs> their own abilities. But the other missing piece that other teams don't have and that Frank Cashin and Joe McElvey did beautifully. These guys came up together from the minors. So they knew each other from the very beginning. Most of them, including Davey, had been together in the minors so they knew each other so well that you didn't have to say anything. They could predict who was gonna be where, what was gonna happen. They knew their temperaments, the personalities, the, you know, so it just set it up so well. And that's so key in what you don't have in a lot of teams anymore. So that was just such a part of them. You know, they lived and breathed and knew each other like you would your, your, you know, yourselves. And with the sweetness of Doc, and this was a thing that was really a shame, the Mets tried to actually close the clubhouse to the media before the game. Because you had the current affair and inside edition, the beginnings of that, all of that uh, non-sports television that were trying to get good stories, and once the non-sports media was allowed in, you couldn't fan them, and you had guys that were being taken advantage of by the media because the, the press would just sit there and watch and figure out what buttons to push, and they'd really take advantage of guys like Doc and others and set them up, and Davey knew that, but Major League Baseball refused to let us block it, it yet no one else had to deal with it like that, the way the Mets did. They, they had access on the field and that should have been it. They didn't need to be, it's like going into your bathroom while you're getting ready for work. Yeah, yeah. Yes? Uh, when Ed Charles was here, uh, he, uh, when I spoke to him, he, he said that the one thing that really disgusted him in his whole entire career was the 86 Mets. And he said that that team could have been like probably the best dynasty in all of and when I think about that, it hurts a lot because, like, <coughs> growing up, my heroes were Dow Strawberry, Doc Gooden, Mike Tyson, and Lawrence Taylor, all role models. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but those guys really, like, touched me, you know, as a young guy looking at these guys. I mean, Dwight Gooden was, like, as African American, were a lot of pictures. Like him, he was kind of like, oh my gosh, like, this is my idol. He was LeBron before LeBron. Yeah, he was, he was just the guy. So when you look at all that was on there and everything else, and he said that for him, 
because he scouted that team. Like he put some of those guys on that squad and helped build that team. And he said to him, he took it personally that it was just like probably was most disappointing that kid. Is that something that's common amongst the insiders that have you know that have you know been around that team? Like like yeah, that? especially Keith Hernandez. He he got downright angry when we were talking about it. He said, uh, you know, in '87 we were we were ready to win again, and you know we every one of our pitchers went down with injuries. Uh, they won 92 games. That, that year he said, <clears throat> but he gets very emotional about it. He said, you know, there wouldn't be all this talk about us being underachievers. Um, you know, we, we should have won again in 87. And then 88, you know, if it's not for Socha, uh, they probably go back to the World Series. And, um, you know, uh, I mean, they could easily have won three in a row with that team. So, yeah, there is a lot of disappointment. Um, all, and that was a trend with all the players that I spoke to. They all believe that they should have won more, and uh, it still sticks in their craw. Even Doug Sisk says that a few nights a week he has a dream, um, that he's trying to get back into Shea Stadium. That's in the book. You know, that, uh, but, but, he, but he's locked out, and it's, um, it's, it's because it's unfinished business. What's the core of that? Was it the behavior? What, what, what was the core that you would say that would just really prevented that team from, from getting? Uh, yeah, um, uh, boy, you know, a lot of these guys said they were missing that intimidation factor. That's what was missing. You know, they they were, they were missing Ray Knight and, and Kevin Mitchell. That that was the biggest thing. But uh, Keith Hernandez also told me, you know, we could have had a little more discipline. Uh, that things did get out of hand a little bit, um, but uh, yeah, the the number one answer is they lost that intimidation factor, and slowly, 87, 88, and then 89, when they got rid of Dykstra and McDowell in that terrible Juan Samuel trade, oh, yeah. uh, and and yeah, they were going to take a second baseman, make him a center fielder, and then soon after, you know, Mookie demands a trade, he's out, so. Um, Keith also Keith gives a lot of insight in the book to, to what happened. If you really want to know, and everyone respects what Keith says, you know, read that chapter first because um, he really bra breaks it down well. You know what happened, uh, how you know they just started trading key players and not getting much back in return, and and uh, it ju they they just slowly ripped the heart out of the team. Yeah, I, I asked Doc how things were going with him and Straw because um, they weren't talking for a couple of years. Um, some stuff that you know Daryl had said in the media about Doc and uh, you know, uh, they, they, they got back together, they talked it out and basically they resolved it by saying, you know, I was misquoted, that's not exactly what I meant. And they've had an on again, off again relationship for 30 years. The thing is, the two of them are always linked together because they came up together. They were two young superstars in New York. Um, and um, they may have been linked together, but they weren't always friends, you know? Um, but 
we, I did talk to Doc about that, and it's in the chapter about how he's getting along with Straw. And they both, um, they're both men of faith now, and I think that's helped their, their relationship a lot too, because they have a commonality. Um, Daryl is now an evangelical preacher uh, who travels 40 weeks a year visiting different venues, different churches, in front of huge audiences, thousands of people, uh, telling him, you know, t talking about his journey and giving his testimony. And Doc's doing something similar, you know. Uh, he's talking to kids and talking to adults about the perils of drugs and, and how his faith has um, helped rescue him from some dark moments too. So there's a commonality I think the two of them have now. And uh, I, I saw them together a couple of months ago at this Mets event. So they're good now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Eric, kind of like this gentleman mentioned, um, you know, Doc and Daryl, for us uh, kids in the 80s, we're, we're bigger than life here yeah. in the city especially. And um, a couple years ago when Curtis Granderson came to New York as a Yankee, um, they have a friend in common. And we sort of, you know, we're going to see you at the stadium this year. I said, no, 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 I'm a Met fan. And he said, how are you a Met fan? This is Curtis seven years ago, right, in New York. I said, Curtis, we're about the same age. Black, white, or other. If you grew up in New York or around New York City in 1986, you're a Met fan. It's called the Doc and Daryl. And he got it. And now you're maybe 30 years later, he'll meet us still in the World Series. But my thought in, in, in Doc and Daryl, I think about them a lot, um, is, and it would never happen today. You know, with prospects that are that touted are, are looked after from rookie ball on up. And Randy can speak to this as well, too. Do you think the ownership group obviously was um, on two different sides at the time? Were they complicit? Should they have done a little more? Was there still a little bit of that attitude? Well, whatever the boys do when they leave the field, as long as they're okay on what they're doing on the field, they're going back to Great Neck and to McSwiggin, <coughs> hey, we turn a blind eye, because we know that wouldn't it happen today. Yeah, like, like what Keith said in, in the chapter, what could they have possibly done? You know, they're, they're grown men. You know, you're gonna tell them, you know, which girl they can't go out with, uh, and Keith, Again, in the book, it, it, that's a great chapter. You know, if you really want to know the insight of what happened to that team, he says there is a woman that you probably know her that uh, Doc was uh, involved with that uh, quote unquote was trouble up River City, uh, and um, and what and and Keith had an inkling uh, as did a couple of others. But what were you going to do? You know, you couldn't follow them home. You couldn't tell these guys who their friends should be. Um, and, um, sure you don't mean Daryl? Uh huh? Sure you don't mean Daryl? Uh, Doc. Doc, I think it is. No. Yeah, it was Doc. <laughs> Which one? Well, because his problem wasn't yeah. women. Whereas Daryl's, Daryl's problem initially started with the drinking. Everything happened from the drinking, and his father was an alcoholic. Right. Which is why his mom wanted to keep him away from his father so much. If he didn't drink, none of the else, the women and the drugs would not have happened. Yeah. Whereas Doc, from the go get his first time he had coke, it he was hooked. Right. It was a totally yeah. different scenario how they came to that. Yeah. You, I mean, with Daryl, it's like you'd be at a bar, whether it was on the road or whatever, and you just see these women, and it would be like, oh my god. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it wasn't Doc wasn't like that. Yeah. Well, it, it, there there must have been a woman that uh, right, that led one, Do one that led Doc astray and. But you, you just couldn't watch these guys 20, 24 7. Even though they were young, you know, 19, 20, 21 years old, 
they were grown men and um, what they did on their own time. So to answer your question, um, uh, Keith, Mookie, those guys that I talked to about this said, you know, we wish we could have done more, especially for a great kid like Doc Gooden was. But um, they, they weren't sure what was going on. They weren't positive. But even if they had an inkling, what could they have done? That, that's kind of how they looked at it. Today, I'm sure it would be different um, if, well, I think, you know, I, because there's just so much money today wrapped up in these guys. That, that's my opinion. Sorry. Actually, I, I think you're right. They keep the right cousins around them and the wrong cousins. Yeah. They have to leave the ballpark. You know, they, the, the, the money has changed the game in so many ways. Um, you know, the, the, the money has changed. We tried. <laughs> no, I'm serious. There was a particular person who was a very bad influence and uh, Major League Baseball and Frank Cashin actually had a clubhouse meeting. Really? Yes. Oh, we can tell me that later. That's what I'm saying. In other words, <laughs> that'll be after the podcast. That's a different thing. But I, <laughs> yeah, ne next podcast question. Um, did, you, did you notice a change in the Mets dynamic because, again, I, mean, I can't remember what book, like the whole George Foster dynamic, oh, and then he got released, I think, August 7th? Yeah. After they signed the Jelly, was there a change in dynamic? Because I can't remember the book, but they always said George Foster tended to be more an III player. Oh, the bad less. guys. Oh, the bad guys. Yeah, that might have been it. Oh, in, in Jeff Perlman's book, yeah. Uh, so I, so the question is, how, how did the trade? How did the Mets players like react to somebody like a George Foster? Because they all seem to have a close-knit within themselves in 86, and you mentioned that in the intro, who was 24, 25 strong. Did they notice a difference with and without George Foster? Well, the, one of the complaints with Foster was uh, you know, so they had four brawls. So there was a brawl, I think it was in Cincinnati, where Foster's like, this is, this is crazy. Like, we're fighting all the time. You know, this isn't, <clears throat> this isn't showing young fans, you know, the way that professionals should, should behave. So he stayed on the bench. He was the only guy that stayed on the bench. And that was kind of the beginning of the end. But he was long past his prime by that point. And this is a guy that had 52 home runs, won the MVP in 77, and when he came to the Mets, he really, his talent level really dropped. Um, but he wasn't disliked, um, but he got in trouble when he started pl uh, getting less playing time, and he made a public statement that, that Davey Johnson was racist. And, um, I've got to tell you, that still stings Davey today. Um, Davey and I have talked a bunch of times in, in recent weeks, um, even since the book's been, been, been out. And you know, he's brought that up to me three times. He says, and, and, and there was the gathering out on Long Island. They, they had a Mets reunion in January. And, uh, and Mookie told me that Davey asked him, he goes, Mookie, did, did I act prejudice? It bothers him all these years later, um, but that got Foster into a lot of trouble because, um, you know, Davey's point was, well, you know, I replaced you with Mookie. You know, like I'm, I'm taking some playing time from you because I want to play Mookie in left field. That was Davey's answer. So it doesn't make sense to him, but it it doesn't sting any less. For, I think you're just hurt. Mm. Adam. 
So you said that the Mets uh, are like a big party team in 1986, but um, a day ago, Ron Garland said that, um, like during their 86 run, that amphetamines and beer Uh, no, it doesn't, because uh, it was a sign of the times. Um, ball, ball players were using amphetamines going back to the days of, of Willie Mays in the early 50s. And um, that, that was like a, you know, like a wink and a nod. It was going, going on in, in baseball for decades before that. Um, so it doesn't surprise me. Um, uh, nor, and some of you are going to disagree with me uh, on this point, but you know, Keith Hernandez was the greatest defensive first baseman I've ever seen, uh, and that's coming from a baseball fan's perspective. I have watched baseball. I'm 50 years old. I've watched baseball since I was six. I've never seen a first baseman play that position better than Keith Hernandez. He was an MVP, uh, batting champion, um, won uh, world championships with two different teams. Uh, I think he was to first base what Mazeroski was to second, what Ozzie Smith was to short, and what Brooks Robinson was to third base. And I believe he should be in the Hall of Fame, and I believe what's keeping him out is because of his drug use in his days with the Cardinals. Uh, I, I, I think it was so high profile, the Pittsburgh drug trial, and it embarrassed baseball so badly that um, that really has kept him out more than anything. Maybe not entirely. When he was up for election, it was during the steroid era. So first basemen were hitting 40 home runs, and Keith was more of like a 15 home run guy. But the, the clutch hitting that he, he, he in my eyes was a Hall of Famer, but he did coke in the early 80s, and he's very open about that. Um, and I think that much like amphetamines, you have to look at the, at the time that that was. And the young and successful, not just in baseball clubhouses, but on Wall Street, probably on this street, people were doing coke <laughs> in the 80s. And, um, and, I, and I, I, I just think it's a shame that that's clearly held, held him back. So it's a long answer. Uh, but no, the, the partying, it was a sign of the times. It really was. And, and getting back to what I was saying about the money today, that's why guys don't party like they used to. Too much money's on the line. Like you know, these, yeah, these guys, you know, when they leave the ballpark, they're with their nutritionists and their trainers and their agents. Um, average players are making $4 million, $5 million a year. Back in those days, your best players were making like $1.5 million. So there's too much money now. That's why you don't see the partying. Um, but could you imagine the 86 Mets in the age of the cell phone? <laughs> that would have been interesting. That's, that, that's scary. Speaking of uh, bad behavior, did you get any uh, new insight into the infamous plane ride back to Yeah, Davey in the introduction blames the wives. He's right. It was the wives. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> but um, yeah, now that was a surprise in the book because, um, you know, I, I've, I've become pretty friendly with, with Mookie's life, wife, wife Rosa. And um, no, 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 not Rosa. But, but, but Rosa you know, was talking about how she would hear uh, chairs getting broken in the back and 
um, and, and it, it was just craziness. And so when I heard from Davey that, no, it was much more the wives than the players. And, uh, you know, the wives didn't travel with, with the team, but they made an exception. Uh, the wives were allowed to travel back after that final game of the NLCS. They had to get out to Houston on their own, but they could come back with their husbands or their wife, boyfriends. Um, so yeah, that was a new spin on that plane trip back. I know Perlman's book um, talked about it very, very differently. Um, so that was a surprise in this book, uh, that Davey blames the wives you know, for really instigating a lot of the wildness. But um, you have to realize too, I mean, those, those guys played an epic 16 inning game. And you know, they were partiers anyway, and they just wanted to blow off steam. And they knew uh, that they weren't gonna beat Mike Scott the next day. Um, so that was their game seven. And uh, you know, they were losing three nothing in the ninth. They rallied back, they take the lead, Astros tie it up again. Then they get a three run lead. <laughs> then the Astros put up two, and they have the winning runs on, right? right. And, and you know, Orozco had nothing left. And then the stories about Hernandez going out to the mound and saying, you know, if you throw anything but a slider, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna punch you. You know, I mean, like there, there, there was just all this excitement and anxiety. And uh, so that plane trip, you can't blame them for burning off a little steam. <laughs> two quick points. Wait, wait, let's, let's yeah. spread it out. It's uh, 2017. You're working on the Kings of Queens 2, the 10 other guys. Huh. Who's the first player that you want to profile because you've heard so much about him? What have you heard? What makes him maybe the most compelling? Um, <clears throat> Ray Knight. I had that. For some reason, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> but what, what did you That's what did such you a about? great question because um, I interviewed more players than, are, than the ones that were profiled, but some of them I just thought. Well, you know, I, I had interviewed Ron, Ron Darling for Mookie's book, and he just didn't really, he wasn't as riveting and intriguing as the others because he's so damn perfect. You know, <laughs> the, you know the, the guy graduated from Yale as an All-American. Um, you know, he was on the cover of GQ. He dated Madonna. Uh, you know, he, he just, you know, married models, went out. Yeah, he's a great looking guy even today. You know, he's, he's doing national t t TV games as, as a broadcaster. And, I, you know, I'm sure that there are challenges that he's had to overcome. But he was one of the ones that, even though I talked to him, just like Aguilera and some of the other guys, I, I just didn't think that their stories were riveting enough to give them their own chapter. Ray Knight I wanted, and I didn't get him. That would have been chapter 15. Uh, uh, you know, in a book you want to make a round, round number, and I, I'll admit it, I, I didn't get him, and I'm not alone. He doesn't talk. Um, he doesn't tell his story, and I tried to, I reached out to him many, many times, and I couldn't get him. I thought that would have been really interesting, although a lot of Knight's story was covered when uh, his teammates would talk about Kevin Mitchell. Um, but this was the World Series MVP, a guy that really came back from the dead. You know, he had a rough 80, 85 season, and then he comes back in 86, hits like 280, 275, and um, he started six of the seven World Series games, 
Um, so I went with Howard Johnson instead. You know, he played third a lot. He had 220 at bats, and and um, he had some big hits, including that St. Louis series in late April when the Mets swept the four-game series from St. Louis. Hojo had the big home run, and and what was cool about Hojo was, you know. Part of, I think, the charm of this book is going out and seeing these guys where they were. But with Hojo, instead of going to Nashville, where he lives now, or to Seattle, where he was the hitting coach, we picked, he was going to Boston. He was the Mariners hitting coach the year that I uh, interviewed him. And we did the interview in the exact spot where he watched Lenny Dykstra's leadoff home run in game, game three. And... Um, I thought that was kind of neat. So that, that that was the one deviation from, um, from 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 the norm as far as the environments. But I, I thought that was neat because he could really talk about what it was like on that bench and and how he and Keith Hernandez were shouting stuff out at Oil Cam Boy to get him riled and uh, so. So so night because that's like the untold story. Yeah, because there's been so little written. He ha he has a little bit of a rift with the Mets. Um, and he's kind of distanced himself. Um, there was a lot of bitterness after they didn't re-sign him. Um, he believes that they gave him a low-ball offer uh, to stay with the team. He went out, became a free agent, and he a actually ended up getting less money from the Orioles. Uh, I think the Mets offered him 800000 the Orioles signed him for six hundred. My numbers might be off, but, um, but basically he held some bitterness against the Mets for not bringing him back. Uh, Mitchell was shocked that he wasn't brought, brought back. Um, so, um, yeah, that was a big surprise in the book, the Mets not bringing back those guys. Uh, almost to, to a man, the player said that was a big difference between 86 and the ensuing years. Actually, one of the things that, uh, a feeling that I got from reading through the book, uh, maybe in between the lines, it seems like there's, it's not unusual Ray Knight's feeling towards the Mets may not be that different than a lot of the 86 Mets. There seems to be some feeling amongst quite a number of these guys that's not exactly warm and fuzzy towards a combination of ownership and current general manager. Uh, is, is that accurate? That's completely accurate. <clears throat> they were the 86 champs, and they believe like they haven't been given opportunities within the organization. Um, like a Wally Backman might, might be the greatest minor league manager to have never managed a major league game. You have Mookie Wilson, arguably the, the most beloved Met of all time and a very good player, played every year of the 80s for the club, the only one, and he's been fired twice as first base coach. Um, so a lot of these guys don't care for the way that they're treating um, their, their history, you know, how... And, you know, you can make the argument, well, the 86 team, you know, God, they partied all the time. Some, some of them did drugs. They, they drank hard and all that. Um, but they're older now. And their feeling is that, you know, we could teach these current Mets some of the pitfalls of New York and all the temptations of New York. And, you know, if you, if you discount, okay, these guys probably aren't going to wreck their careers with drugs, but how about the women? You know, I mean, this is New York, you know? And, and uh, so they could certainly teach them. You know, these guys are in their late 50s and 60s now. You know, what, I, 
so they, they, they feel like they could really help these guys not just to teach them the game, but also how to learn how to win and win in New York. We're closing uh, towards the end of the time for the podcast. Is there anyone with a last question who hasn't asked a question yet? I'm okay. Nothing from the Met fan of all time? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to give the last word then uh, to a, a paragraph in this book. Uh, again, the name of the book, Kings of Queens, Life Beyond Baseball with the 86 Mets, written by Eric Sherman, published by Berkeley Books. And there's a chapter in here, we didn't get, get into his story, but Danny Heap uh, is one of the chapters. And Eric asked him, are the card shows the thing that brings you guys together the most? And Danny Heap's reply, yeah, but when Daryl opened up a restaurant a few years back around City Field and asked some of the guys to come in, we were all there. I'm not talking about just 10 of us. I've got a picture and it was every guy. And that's the Kings of Queens. Thank you very much, Eric. Thank you.